Hey everybody, this is Kristen. I wanted to give you a quick update about what's going on with me in the show right now. You may have noticed that I have not published any new episodes since the holidays. <laughs> My little team has actually been working on a new website for the show, and so I stopped putting out episodes thinking the website was going to be ready, you know, at least a month ago. Um, and then I could just, you know, kind of put everything out at the same time, which is a completely amateur mistake because obviously all websites take infinitely longer than you think they will to get up and running. So there's that. There's also the fact that, you know, part of the reason it's been taking so long to get that done is that I've been working on the biggest project I've ever worked on. And that's been pretty intense since this past fall. And you'll find out about all those details in a couple of weeks. The good news is I didn't stop making episodes for Birth Aloud Radio. I just stopped putting them out. So I have a backlog of about 10 episodes right now, and I think you're going to really love them. I think they just seem to get better and better in my <laughs> opinion. They include an awesome episode with Rebecca Decker of Evidence-Based Birth about the weirdly controversial topic of doula advocacy, insights from a progressive OB anesthesiologist in Pennsylvania who is pioneering respectful maternity care in her hospital system, and a couple of doulas going on the record to talk about obstetric violence openly. So once again, it will be about the second week of April that we will be revealing to you the project we've been working on behind the scenes frantically and keeping top secret until now. This is my dream project. The thing that I'm hoping will be a major disruptor to the maternity care status quo. It's all about reaching the mainstream with the truth about what can happen in L&D once you cross that threshold and in so many places are treated as if you don't have any rights or any choices. I think we've spent a lot of years trying to change things from the inside and that's essential, but it's not going to be effective without pressure from the outside. And this project is that pressure. So be sure you're on my email list for updates, which you can find at the bottom of the page at www.birthmonopoly.com. In the meantime, enjoy this sort of bittersweet episode about birth and death with one of my favorite formerly illegal midwives, Karen Webster. See you soon. You're listening to WLXU 93.9 LPFM Lexington, Lexington Community Radio. And this is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. I'm an advocate for women's rights in childbirth, founder of Birth Monopoly, co-creator of the Exposing the Silence Project, a national photography project on birth trauma, and former vice president of Improving Birth, the nation's largest consumer-based maternity care advocacy organization. You can learn more about my work at birthmonopoly.com. Today, we welcome Karen Webster. Karen is a daughter, sister, friend, wife, mother, nana, and midwife. A midwife, she says, not defined by the letters behind her name or numbers or a license, but by the women who choose to have her by their side when they give birth. Karen has worked to make midwifery legal and licensed in four states over the past 24 years. She has also been investigated and charged for practicing midwifery in Maryland, Delaware, and Virginia, and she has fought back through the legal system. 
I met Karen several years ago in Blankenburg, Belgium, at a summit for midwives and human rights in childbirth, and we became instant friends. Karen has been practicing midwifery about as long as I've been alive, putting herself on the line to help women go around the birth monopoly and give birth how, where, and with whom they choose. I still hear every day stories of these things happening to women where they're disrespected. You know, they come to me, they're like, well, I'm, I want a home birth because this happened to me and nobody listened to me. This is not new news, yeah. but what's happening with licensure is that we are going to be so restricted and particularly if they're going to use, if ACOG, which is very powerful and ACNM who are distant relatives, but sort of friends in my opinion, so that's the obstetricians and the nurse midwives. Yeah. Yeah. Organizations. Yes. Well, you said and before something about it was the ACOG bill or something like yeah. what it, I didn't ACOG, actually catch what you said. Okay. Let me explain to you. ACOG loves the Maryland bill. The Maryland bill gives us autonomy in only one way. They don't require us to have any kind of written practice agreement with physicians, but they've tied our hands in every way that they can with Minutia, you can't believe. I mean, just like what? So I have a lot of clients who don't follow that kind of group think. And I would say every midwife has this. And it's a dilemma for us now because a lot of women call us and say, can you recommend a physician that I can go to that will accept a delayed schedule or will at least dialogue with me about different ways of raising this baby? And I go, yeah, they're disappearing. They're dying. The older people are dying. It's difficult to, it's such a campaign. So what happened in Maryland is that our law, our statute is so big brothery. I hate that's not a word, but that's for lack of a better term. And I know this happens in, in other arenas in other states perhaps, but part of our law states that we have to by 36 weeks, if our clients haven't chosen a pediatrician or family doctor, we have to choose one. We have to assign them one. And what does that mean? How do we assign? That's funny because um, that doesn't happen if you have your baby else. If you have your baby somewhere else, you don't get assigned a doctor. Absolutely not. You do not. Probably what happens though in the hospital is, and, and I doubt that this even happens because the follow-up is so bad and, and they're so inundated with paperwork and you know I'm sure they don't follow up. And well, we know they don't follow up with people. But um, I'm sure they don't send charts off to whatever. They don't ask and say, who's your pediatrician? And we'll send your entire record off to the pediatrician or family doctor. So in Maryland, if they haven't chosen a physician, I take care of a lot of Amish people. They do not go to the doctor and they do not trust our doctors. And they don't go unless they're sick. And they've got to be really, really sick. You know, they can mm-hmm. have broken bones and things sticking out and that kind of stuff. So when we deem that the mother is in active labor, say five to six centimeters, it is our responsibility by statute, not reg, by statute, we have to call that physician that we've assigned. Now that physician doesn't know. The pediatrician. Whoever it is, right? So we maybe have a list and we say, who's near you? And I don't, you know, I don't go to anybody and I have to assign you somebody. So who do you want? And then we Wait, wait, but- I'm not kidding. Is the doctor participant? Like, does no, the doctor have the a choice? Were, no. And the doctors were not for this at all. This is entirely propagated. That's by- so strange. Like, yeah. how can the state make the doctor the take a patient? Board of nursing, the Department of Health and um, Mental Hygiene in Maryland, they all cooked this up. 
Now wait, it gets better. So when they're in labor at three o'clock in the morning, we say, oh, we th I think you're in active labor. Oh gosh, I got to call your pediatrician now. Let them know. <laughs> well, of course, the, you're, you're calling a service and you're letting them know. Just wanted to let you know that your client, who you don't know, maybe, and you didn't even know that we assigned you this client, is in active labor. So be, be on the lookout because at seven, by 72 hours, by I have to look at my regs or the law, within 48 to 72 hours, we have to fax their entire record over to that pediatrician. Yeah. I'm already in trouble. I've been licensed since, oh wait, and that's a really fun story. Maybe one person I've, I've sent records for because the rest of them are like, I just can't send your records to somebody who's going to call me and say, what are these? Who is this person? You know, it's, it's very weird. So that's just an example of, of what we have written into our law. It's very, very strange. What, how does it affect your scope of practice? Like the stuff that you're trained to do that you're just not allowed to do? Okay. We have very prescribed things that we can do. They don't, they absolutely do not understand us. Despite exhaustive, you know, meetings and people from Ida Dara came from NARM to explain the scope of practice to, to really go over the history. That's the North American Registry of Midwives. So, so the, the head of testing came and met with twice with the Board of Nursing and to share the, the scope and breadth of our training and to, you know, to help them understand that we are trained as CNMs are to care for mother, baby, et cetera, to refer, to do risk assessment. They just have no idea. They have no idea to this day. They don't know what what certified professional midwives no, do? I have had a couple of clients recently who've, I always encourage people to have a, a collab, you know, some sort of a relationship with the physician. And I try to reach out to the physician and sometimes I know them, they know me, no problem. But I have a physician right now who's pushing so much because she's terrified that this woman, this young woman is having her first baby at home. It's very clear what's going on. And she's at 31 weeks, she wanted to do it a, a group B strep test which is not evidence-based till 36, 37 weeks. It's not going to, you know, it's like, what, do you, what, what are you going to do about that? Anyway, she's just trying to force her into all kinds of tests. She wanted her to have a DTAP, diphtheria, you know. Uh, yeah, vaccination get a flu. And, mm -hmm. and the mom said, I'm sorry, I had a very bad reaction when I was younger and I don't, you know, I don't do immunizations. She's got a lot of allergies. And she explained it courteously and they just went, they were like dogs, you know, they just were like, well, that's our, that's our policy and we have to do this. And she goes, well, then I'm going to go home and I'm not going to continue any kind of care with you. I see what's happening and it's a struggle. So I, so that's part of the learning curve for, for physicians and for this system now. Prior to licensure, I was able to build good collaborative relationships with doctors who knew me. And now I realize I'm going to have to reach out to them. I don't know if I'm going to have to have a meeting with the hospital, you know, and I work all over. So it's kind of crazy. So then I explained to them, yes, we do actually draw labs and we do follow up and we do actually have a Doppler to monitor the baby's heart. You know, we do offer more evidence-based glucose challenge tests, but they have, but you have to understand, and this is the part that's really hard for them is that we really respect women's right to refuse and that in my practice at least, women are at the center of their own care. So I don't care what the state says, I'm going to give them the as highest of information as I can so they can make a really informed decision about their own care. And the state's just gonna go mad. They're just gonna well, go crazy. 
Karen, you're talking about the difference between the the midwifery model and the obstetric model. Right. But now it's just not, not in their framework that no. the patient is the decision maker. So what I, so Kristen, what I notice now is that, um, and this was a revelation that, that happened as soon as I got my license in Maryland. And I, you know, I realized the enormity of the regs that are imposed on us. We, we can't do well woman care. That's taken out of our scope of practice. Wait, what? What do you we're mean? Not to, we're not allowed to do um, pap smears past six weeks. We can do them at six weeks. Wait anymore. a second. So you're not allowed to act as a midwife unless the woman is pregnant? Or you're not allowed to be a yes. healthcare provider yes. unless the They're person is pregnant? So, so here's another funny thing. Um, oh, hold on. Let me just... <laughs> I, I, <laughs> that's unbelievable. I mean, yeah. the scope of midwifery is a, a woman's lifetime. Mm-hmm. Well, we're limited to the childbearing years and within Well, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're limited to I just meant beyond. Our care has to be limited to within six weeks of the birth of the baby. That In Maryland. That prescribed. Wow. So we can offer a pap smear at six weeks. And in my practice, what I've always done, because I feel like six weeks might be a little early to do a pap smear. They're still heal healing quite a bit. And and in my practice, what, what we established years ago was pap smear potlucks or paplux. So we offer those within three months of the baby's birth. We include it in our fee. We don't, uh -huh. we don't charge for that. And what we do is we get a list going of women who, are, who need a pap smear. You know, the USPSTF, whatever the guidelines, they change almost yearly now. But we try to make it fungus. Who wants to go have a pap smear? It's like, well, you know, yeah. not fun we make it fun so everybody everybody brings a potluck dish and they bring their babies and they sit around in the living room and tell stories and then they pop in and have their pap smear and my students have an opportunity to learn that skill in a more comfortable way for everyone yeah. um, but we're not allowed to do that anymore so if they're gonna have a pap smear with me they have to have it at their six-week checkup that's the deal we can't even speak to somebody in Maryland anyway who has a BMI over 35 which is not evidence-based there's that weight bias. If you have a BMI over, over 35, then you are- You're yeah. automatically unhealthy and high risk. Which is not true. And I've taken care of a lot of- um, Which can be true, but is not always true. Of course it can And be. it's all about that individualized- Of course. Decision-making. And, and of course, we talk a lot about food and the quality of food and what, you know, what you're eating, not how much weight you're gaining. I find that in my practice over the last 33-ish years- Larger women don't tend to gain a lot and they're very conscientious. If they come to me, they've already made the decision to be conscious about their pregnancy. And so they're really being careful about what they're eating or their moderate, you know, but I haven't found them to be higher risk. Even, even diabetics who, who develop gestational diabetes, which I feel is a myth anyway. I feel like gestational diabetes is just a marker for somebody developing diabetes later. So it's like a flag and we can work with them and, and say, hey, you need to start exercising, eating this way, avoiding these foods, because you're at risk for developing diabetes later in your life. And so we can, that's, that's like a chance for us to jump on it with them and help them. What about the risk of a big baby due to gestational diabetes? I did not have gestational diabetes. I had nine, 10 and 10 and a half pound babies. I mean, I consider. Wow. Them. And how, how big are you? You're small. I'm like five, three. 
Mm. Yeah. I weigh a lot more than I did, I, I would say, when I was having my children. I think my average weight was about, I, I ranged anywhere from 105 to 118. Not pregnant. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But, but um, no, I have yet to develop diabetes. Um, and I actually randomly test my blood sugar because I'm always checking my glucometers to make sure they work. Because we do offer that kind of testing, but we offer a more what I think is a more evidence-based, less painful, toxic we just, we offer wider choices and we give women information so they can make the decision. That I'm not, I'm not attached to what decisions they make. I'm attached to, the, to them doing their own homework and I'm the resource person. Well, I asked you what kind of what the scope of practice restrictions were, stuff that you've been trained to do, but you're not allowed to do oh. in the state of Maryland because of the new law twins, breaches that I know a lot of people would roll their eyes at that anyway, but we are some of the only um, practitioners who are still knowledgeable and skilled at doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, at attending. And have you done that before? I have. I sure have. How'd that go? Good. It went well. I mean, it, there are, there are definitely a different, you know, it's, it's like a variation of normal. Twins and breaches are a variation of normal. And, and if you widen your scope outside of the United States, if you look at Canada and Germany and some of the other countries that are changing their their practice guidelines around breach and twins, et cetera, you'll see that it's a more realistic way of looking at the risk ratio. So it's just a different set. So there are some added risks, but it doesn't make you somebody who's going to explode or implode necessarily. Well, you know, I think one of the, one of the most compelling arguments for breach training is that you can't, you don't always know you're going to get a breach. So you're in the hospital and you have some terrified doctor stuffing oh, a baby yeah. back up into a mom yeah. to get them back to the operating room, which is, and talk about dangerous, risky. Dangerous. The really sad thing is there are doctors my age and older, I'm 65, maybe a little younger than me too, who, who, who own that skill and knowledge, but it's not taught in, in medical school in this country anymore, to my knowledge. I'm mm-hmm. sure there are some that are looking at you know, the practices in other countries and saying, ooh, maybe we should, you know, teach these people just in case. Those guys, those men and women who are experienced with breaches because they've been in this field for a long time, they're, they're dying or they're retiring. So mm-hmm. we've got it. We've got a little bit of a crisis. Yeah, it's tough. But VBAC is a big deal. VBAC vaginal is, birth after cesarean. Vaginal birth after C-section. The evidence points to the safety of vaginal birth after one and even two C-sections, depending on, you know, you look at a state, you know, you look at the woman as a whole, you look at her, her state of health, how, you know, there's a whole type of surgery, a risk scale, um, the reason for the surgery, right? All of that. But I've been doing VBACs the entire time I've been in practice. I mean, Mm -hmm. and now I cannot, I cannot do them at all. Which is the insane thing to me about that is you can't have a VBAC in a hospital in Maryland. I mean, well, they're only. They have an 11% success rate in my practice because I've kept statistics perspectively. Mm-hmm. Thousand. Um, and those are the important ones. My success rate with, with women attempting a, a vaginal birth after C-section is about 83% as compared to 11% overall in hospital. Right. Well, when I say can't, it's like there's a, there's a possibility, but you can't plan on it because it's such a, it's a matter of luck and the restrictions chance. And it, it depends on where you, are. I know it really depends on yeah. where 
COVID. Most of the smaller regional hospitals don't have a ban on VBACs. The larger city hospitals, there are, you know, every, you know, there's a network of women who kind of suss out what's going on. Figure out where to go. There are a few hospitals. There are, there are actually a couple hospitals where you can closer to DC where you can actually have a vaginal breach, but what are your odds? You know, of, of yeah. getting well, and, and then being on call and, you know, exactly. That well, right. And then a hospital doesn't have to have an actual ban on VBAC for, for it to be banned for you. You show up and you happen to get a doctor on call who says, sorry, I don't do VBAC. Right. right. You're having a C-section today. You're having a C-section. And in my ideal world, and I think a lot of midwives ideal worlds, we, we maybe be in Holland, which is not, okay, nothing's, nothing's perfect. But in Holland, there are, there are, they're actually risked out for more things than we are for home birth. However, the midwife can continue care and go into the hospital and do the birth. Mm-hmm. And it's not a big deal. I have a Dutch client right now who's having her, I think it's her fifth with, I don't know. She just transferred care to me late. She was, she was hoping to go back to Holland because she's gone back to Holland for two of her births. That's how wow. she was, this system was so, uh, just astonishing. You can say it. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll beep you out no, if you just, say a bad word. She couldn't handle like the, she just couldn't even understand at all the system here. And I have, I have friends who are midwives in Holland and it's so very, you know, it's just a different thing. There are advantages and disadvantages. Sometimes they don't have the continuity of care, but it's treated, you know, it's not a big deal. One of her, her second baby was breech. So they went into the hospital. She went into the hospital with her midwife and they did a vaginal breach. That's incredible. Such such a, not a big deal for her. She talks Mm -hmm. about like, well, you know. And here, just to clarify here, we're talking about two completely separate and often hostile systems. So you might have care with your beloved midwife up until, you know, 35 weeks, find out you have a breach, decide you need to be in a hospital and, or she's not allowed to do a breach at home. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you're going into a completely different environment. Your midwife has nothing to do with your care after that. Well, your midwife can come in. I mean, that's why I have been so careful to try to have a collaborative relationship with physicians so they know who I am. I go to them and consult. But again, Karen, that's a matter of luck. Do you know what I mean? Like, I know, I know. It's like, there are some physicians who might be willing to collaborate with home birth midwives, but most not only are not willing, but are downright hostile and are going to punish that mother for even considering a home birth. So this is just a little thing I'll insert because I think this is really important for midwives to hear, especially now. And it's not like midwives don't know this, but since we've come from such a hostile environment where we where at some times we had to not go into the hospital as support with our clients when we transferred, I have almost always gone in with my clients unless I was under investigation or prosecution. And then I felt like, well, maybe I'll send a student in because, you know, do I really want to get in trouble again? But I think that's where I think being proactive now that we have licensure, being proactive about reaching out to hospitals, offering an in-service or offering an informal meeting to, Mm -hmm. to discuss what our care looks like and how we can work with maternal Mm -hmm. fetal medicine or reproductive, you know, whoever, or just, you know, how we can make transfers smoother 
when they happen because they're going to happen. And I prefer mm -hmm. to, for them to know me and not look like, oh my God, here's one of those midwives, you know, that we do give care. Like I had a doctor once, I had a transfer of a, of a young Amish woman with her first baby and it wasn't, it, she was in labor prior to 35 weeks. And I just decided we've got to go into the hospital. We don't know what we're dealing with. And, you know, we went in and the doctor on call didn't, he knew of me, but he wasn't really familiar with me. And he actually turned to me while the mom was, she was getting ready to push her. She was pushing and it was her first baby. So it was a little while. And he turned to me and he said, so you do labs. Now I had given them the chart. I had given them the chart with the labs and all the, you know, the notes and everything that we do. And he said, you do labs, right? I said, yeah, we do. He said, well, how do you get the blood out? What do you, uh, what do you put it in? <laughs> and I was like, uh, oh, we just put our hand, you know, we just like kind of poke the mom and put our hands under, you know. <laughs> I collect it in our hands. <laughs> we have LabCorp accounts and we have accounts with labs and we do the same thing that anybody does, only we do it in a much more comfortable, friendly way than sending a mom into a lab. You know, it's like the level of misunderstanding and misinformation still to this day that physicians have about it. So, so licensure is kind of a game changer. It just, but, but here's the, I, this is what I was going to tell you. I realized the minute I got my Maryland license, <clears throat> because you know, they've been get, trying to get me in Maryland for 25 years and they tried real hard is that now licensure gives them a way to get you much easier. And we have a 10-page double-sided cheat sheet that every Maryland licensed midwife carries with her to a birth because that's how many regs and, and restrictions we have. We, we need to like check that. Oh, I don't know if I can do that. Oh, whoop, do I have to call? It's insane. It's, it's really crazy. So well, let, me, let me stop you right there. We need to go to a break really quickly okay. and then we'll come back and will you finish that thought? This is Birth Aloud with my mom, Kristen Muscucci. My mom works at Birthman Opti. <laughs> this program is supported by attorney Susan Jenkins, a national advocate for midwives and birth activists specializing in business, governmental, and political issues related to birthing rights and the practice of midwifery. She can be reached at area code 866-686-1348. Would you like to support Birth Aloud Radio? Please contact us at birthaloudradio at gmail.com. You're listening to WLXU 93.9 LPFM Lexington, Lexington Community Radio. And this is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. Okay, we're back. Okay. Yeah, it's going to be a big learning curve for midwives who have been able to serve women in the midwifery model of care who now have to figure out how they fit the midwifery model of care into these restrictive guidelines. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, because you know where I live on the border of four states, honestly, now what state am I in today? And what can I do? And what can I do? And when do I have to do that? And what doctor do I have to, you know, it's, I feel like I'm actually more vulnerable now. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm feeling a real pull to develop relationships with hospitals and physicians so that they know I am a trained, experienced, and that the difference between me and them is just that I really 
put the onus on the woman to make decisions about her care. And I don't use fear. There isn't a, a week that goes by that I don't have a mom say to me, they said that my baby might die, you know, if I didn't do this. I mean, and I'm still astonished that that kind of language is used or allowed or whatever. If you really think there's a risk of that, there's another way to frame that. We're not talking about like, if you jump off a bridge, your baby might die. We're talking about- If you don't take antibiotics, if you're GBS positive and you don't take antibiotics. So that's a big one for me because I've been following the trajectory of of the research on that on an international level for probably 20 years. And I know there's a lot of evidence, you know, I, I, we've created a problem by inundating every woman who's GBS positive, 30 to 40% or even more of the population with a bacteria that's typically part of her gut flora. It doesn't mean that it's, you know, a killer bacteria. Yes, I, do, I don't minimize GBS disease in infants because they can die, sure, and they can be quick moving. And um, however, by giving every single woman even outside of the risk factors that have been identified, one or God knows how many doses of um, the very antibiotics that we have that are problematic already. We are wiping out that mother and that baby's gut bacteria. So that we're making the, if they're in a hospital, they're much more vulnerable to pathological bacteria. So MRSA, C. diff, um, E. coli. I've had a number of transferred babies pick up infections that there's no way they would have picked up at home. So a lot of my evidence is in my own practice is just, it's just stuff I've seen. But well, it's I, called experience. <laughs> yeah, but I think we've created a larger problem. And so a lot of physicians are very nervous about not giving antibiotics when a woman refuses antibiotics. They're very nervous about that. And they will use language that's really, I think, violent and really um, disrespectful. I give them the evidence. I give them the CDC evidence and we look at at what they're doing in other countries. And I know other countries are starting to follow our lead, which is, I find really unfortunate because we're not doing a very good job. We have not reduced the incidence of babies who are sick from GBS by giving every woman who's GBS positive IV antibiotics. But what's the alternative to that? Many, many things. Building your gut floor. So in my practice, because we anticipate, I encourage women to test because it's, it's good to have that knowledge. You can still decide how you want to deal with this. And so we use uh, probiotics and fermented foods from day one. When they come into my practice, we talk about the importance of what you eat and how, I, and I say that's critical. That's critical to the health of your baby and the health of your pregnancy. There's a study in, I want to say Turkey, it's been ongoing for a while. There are now a couple of other studies that are looking at particular strains of probiotics and how we can build women's gut flora and how well we do preventing GBS disease. And what women have to understand is being GBS positive is not a death sentence. You know, it's just simply another piece of information. It doesn't mean that you are high risk. Outside of some identifiable risk factors like low birth weight, baby under five pounds, premature birth, so baby born prior to 37 weeks, and rupture of membranes over 24 hours. Now, they change that guideline constantly, so I don't even know what it is now. Maybe it's 18 hours till active labor, 18 hours till birth. Outside of those risk factors, it's a very small percentage of babies that actually do develop GBS disease. It's a scary thing. I would never withhold antibiotics or treatment from a sick baby, never. 
The other thing that I've found the most effective in my practice is homeopathy. That's been amazing. And I'll just tell you, I have this little, you know, because I've, I've midwifed my daughters, 10 of my 12 grandkids, two of my grandkids were adopted. So I didn't get to midwife them. One of my daughters was GBS positive in her urine early on in pregnancy. So that's considered heavily colonized. She was treated by our homeopath and they taught us your goal is not to eliminate group B strep bacteria from their gut flora because it's not in and of itself a malignant bacteria. It's just part of their gut flora. What you want to do is build their immune system so that it's not an issue. How successful is it? Very successful. Well, I mean, I think that's what everybody wants to know, right? Like you're talking about things that are mind blowing for a lot of people and safety is of course the number one thing on most people's minds. So Karen, does that work for babies and moms? Well, so your protocol in my 37, okay, it'll be almost 38 years. I've never seen GBS disease in my practice. But the other thing that we don't do, we have a whole protocol for if your water breaks, the last thing we're doing is a vaginal exam. We're not, mm-hmm. we're not putting anything in there. We have a whole handout with a protocol for all the women that we take care of. If their water breaks, we want to know if it's leaking, gushing. We want them to build their gut immunity. We want them to boost their things that, that boost your immunity, echinacea, vitamin C, garlic, et cetera. And you know, stay very, very clean. It's just, a, you know, it's common sense. Say you're even going to a birth center or you're going to a hospital and your water breaks and you're GBS positive. They want you in there right away so that you can have a greater exposure to those, to those other bacteria that you can be exposed to. And then they want to just put it in there. So you're taking- With a vaginal exam. Yeah. You're taking um, bacteria that lives in the lower third of the vaginal vault. It's real hard to avoid that area when you're doing a vaginal exam and you're going to take it and you're going to put it up at, in that cervix repeatedly. In how, how many it, babies have you, how many births have you attended? You know, this is an interesting question. I get this a lot. I would estimate that I've attended and this is with other midwives and in a practice that I was in uh, with a partner Certainly not as many as a lot of midwives because I was raising a family and that was my eight. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I think I've attended around 12 to 1300. Okay. Not not as primary midwife always, but. Have you ever lost a mom? Um, In what way? Has she died or has she left? Yes. Died. No, I have been incredibly blessed because I think that would be a really devastating thing. But you know, one of the things that my midwife told my husband, he didn't even, she didn't even tell me, I'm sure she did at some point, but she took my husband aside when it was clear that I was on that path, even though I wasn't aware of it and never wanted to be a midwife. You mean? Yeah. I did not Mm -hmm. want, I never, like I didn't babysit when I was a kid because I thought babies were gross. And then I had, um, you know, eight. Uh, So somewhere along that way. And then I became very political and I had most of my babies at home, but she said, to my husband, she took him aside and she said, you know, I just want you to know that the veil between life and death is very thin and we don't get to choose. Um, I'm not shy about going into the hospital if something seems to veer from normal that we can't really quickly mm-hmm. with our low tech, low intervention um, tools change back to normal. The hospital is not necessarily the safest place to be, but they have more tools than we do. But we in this country, 
we bought into this thing, you know, this, this philosophy where we can pay an expert either a lot or some money depending, or, or your insurance company, a lot of money. And then we should get a guarantee of safety and health. Nobody can provide that. No one. So we mm-hmm. have that talk. We, we talk about that. That's in my informed disclosure. And I think a lot of midwives do. I think we're less afraid of death than maybe physicians are. A lot of physicians, I think there's a lot of, here, here's my, all right, here, I have a recommended book. One of my students encouraged me to read this book and I thought it was about something entirely different. It's called Being Mortal. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard it, but you should read it. Everybody in the United States should read it. And it's by an author, his, I'll probably mispronounce his name, Atul Gawande, I think. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, of course. It talks about why physicians become physicians and how we approach death and our heroic efforts in this country to prevent death when it is inevitable many times. And we're just creating a system where we throw more and more money and time and we make people's end of life excruciating. Easy for me to say I'm still here, you know, but in my family, everybody that I know died at home. We don't do funerals. We have parties. You stand up and you say your stuff and everybody cries and you quote the rainbow bridge and all that. But it's like this wonderful potluck funeral Mm -hmm. without a funeral. We don't put any money into boxes and stuff like that. We don't do that. You know, I had, I had a personal experience with that really changed the way I thought about it. A couple of years ago, my grandmother was sick, really, really sick with cancer. And she lived in Florida. I got the call. If you want to say goodbye to your grandmother, you better come now. So my son and I raced down to Florida. We got there, we walked in and nobody had told me they had like redone the guest room into like a hospital room. She was in a hospital bed surrounded by equipment. She looked like a skeleton in a grave. I mean, I mean, she was just emaciated and, you know, I mean, it was, it was shocking and I was not prepared for that. The big piece of the story though was she ended up dying that night while we were asleep. So we had just gotten to Florida we go to bed, I wake up in the morning, and her body is gone, and the room is cleaned out. Like, it was like bizarre. bizarre. Like, well, I can't even explain how strange and surreal it was to wake up in the morning, and everything's gone. Like, she was never there. And later, my mom and her sister and I, you know, sat down and talked about it, and we all said, gosh, you know, I wish we hadn't you know, done it that way, which was, you know, somebody realized in the middle of the night that she had passed. They immediately called the service and they came in, got everything clean, you know, got the body out, got the, got the room, got the equipment out. And we all just went, oh my God, we had no transition. You know, half of us just woke up and she, it was like, she was never there. It was, it was the strangest experience. And after that, I really started thinking hard about that whole process. Mm -hmm. And I asked a relative about years and years ago, how my one grandfather had died. And, you know, they were describing how at that time in this big Italian family, Mm -hmm. you kept the body at the house. They had a special room for the dead bodies. You know, when people (laughs) in the family died, they were laid out in there. The whole family came over, everybody, you know, cried and and spoke and prayed and had their whole mini grieving processes right there with the body. 
in the house where that person lived. Right. It just seems like such a healthier and more humane process. The hospice movement must be different. I think it depends on what agencies you're dealing with and what you, um, Mm -hmm. we were really lucky. My uncle died at home. My dad died at home. My grandparents died at home. Same thing with my mom. My mom lived a mile up the road. So I spent a lot of time with her and I was at a birth. It was about 5.30 in the morning. It was another midwife and um, I caught her baby and I got a phone call. Your mom thinks it's, it's time and she just wanted to let you know. And I'm like, I'm leaving. She wasn't actually leaving, but she was telling us, you guys have time now to spend talking about these. You know, we had, she gave us the opportunities to be with her and say the things we wanted to say. And I can remember all of my children and grandchildren gathering at her bedside a couple nights before she died and singing all of her favorite hymns. And it like gave her permission. And she told, she told, she sat me down and um, she said, you know, I've stayed as long as I can stay. And, you know, I love you all, but I, dad's been gone for a couple years. You know, I actually had been several years by then. And I really just want to go. I really don't want to fight this anymore. I want to, I'm ready to go. And so she just wanted to share that. And she wanted us to say, well, Mm -hmm. we, we want you to go. It's good. You can go. And it was a one, I mean, for me, that has been like just the most amazing thing. It was like so different. I mean, I was sad as could be. I cried for a year after my mom died, but she had given us that, that gift. Um, But fear that is so part of the life and death cycle. We are terrified of it because it has been taken out of our everyday reality. You know, put it in perspective, birth has only taken place in hospitals and institutions for less than 100 years. How long has the funeral industry been around? As you were talking about, in other countries, in, you know, in Holland and in Ireland and many other countries now, you still have wakes. They don't embalm bodies. They might put them in ice. And, and the family and friends have a chance to say goodbye. It's for them. They realize it, you know. But the weird thing we do, it's just, it's like a, having a cocktail party with a corpse, you know. Uh, it's just <laughs> so bizarre and paying thousands and thousands of dollars. But it's, but it's, but it all, it's all connected. And I want to tell you one more story. I don't know how much time you have, but I have this story. Go for it. So we had one mom. She'd had several babies with me. And she went on to have at least one or two more, if I'm correct. And at 35 weeks, I was at the movies with my husband, a very rare occasion. And I get a phone call from her and I'm like, why is she calling me? And I'm, you know, and, she, and she's a very seasoned mother. And she says, I haven't felt the baby move. And I'm very concerned. And that's so why I went back into my husband. I said, I got to go. We got to go. So I went to her house and sure enough, we got no heartbeat. And I, you know, my sense was I could, you know, you can sense what's going on when you, where your hands are your tools, you know, and I thought, "Mm, this baby's gone. I said, I can't get the heartbeat. I think we need to go and have an ultrasound to make sure what's going on. So we went in to the hospital and thank God we got a doctor who we were able to document that, you know, the baby had died. We didn't know why it was at 35 weeks. That's so hard when you're almost there, you know? Mm, Yeah. But we documented and this doctor was giving her options. It was so painful. And um, he said, well, you can stay here now and we can induce you. He said, you can go home and you can think about it, gather your thoughts and then come back and we can help you with that. And then he turned to me and he and I did not, this was our introduction. He turned to me and he said, or 
you can go home, we can talk about what would be safe to do, and you can have this baby at home if you want. Oh. So I appreciated that so much. And so I went out, I stepped out of the room with him. I said, what are our guidelines? I had done one other situation like this, and we had finally opted to go into the hospital to have the baby. Where a stillbirth, you mean? Yeah. Well, no, it was a, what we call a fetal demise. Of course, it was a stillbirth. Oh, right. He had died, and right. we knew it. We documented it. And um, that was a different story. But this one, you know, we knew the baby had passed and she was 35 weeks. So your body is not necessarily wanting to eject a baby at that point. But you've got, you've got some testing you can do because there are some things that can happen in your blood, in your clotting mechanism that can make it dangerous for you to be outside of an institution. So we talked about what, what would be the safe guidelines we decided we would put a boundary of a week on whether we could get this mom into labor. We did the testing that he suggested. I enlisted other mothers, other clients. I had a massage therapist, um, a mom of mine who's an acupuncturist, you know, a mother who'd had a home birth with me who was an acupuncturist. She's my acupuncturist and my massage therapist. And they worked on her and we gave her herbs. We weren't holding anything back because we wanted this, this baby to come out, but we wanted her to be able to do this at home. And, and she wanted that. And she did her homework during the week. She called the Maryland coroner, the state coroner, and found out the guidelines. She did a lot of um, information gathering, and she paved the way for being able to have her baby at home and to be able to bury. Uh, incidentally, if you have a certain amount of property, you can bury you know, a loved one on your property, whatever. So she found all that out, and she was assured that when the time came, she could call the coroner and, you know, so. Oh, I can't imagine being in that state, carrying around. She is an amazing woman. And I know it was very, very, I know to this day it was, you know, it was, she still carries it with her, but she did that and they couldn't get her into labor. And finally it was Saturday night and Sunday was our deadline. She called and she was in labor. So we went out and my partner was with me and we spent the night out there just being with her and she was laboring and it was labor, you know, I mean, it was 35 week baby, but when you have a baby that has died, you know, you've got a, you've got a passenger that's not helping with birth. So it's, it's more difficult. So anyway, we, we, she labored through the night. The baby was born around dawn and her, you know, her family was there. Let them have a good long period of time to spend with the baby. We called the doctor who had verified. We had ultrasound. We had, um, you know, verification that the, that the baby had died. He was out of town at a conference. So we had to get the records and they, you know, once they knew what had happened, they freaked out. They flipped. They said, well, you can't transport a a body in Maryland without a death certificate. And you can't, you know, it was like, and you can't get a death. It was like crazy. Wait, where did they want to, where were you trying to transfer the body? We weren't even trying to, we didn't know we had to, but. It had to go through the coroner. At least they thought it had to, right? So next thing I know, there's this, a giant CSI van out, parked outside in her driveway. And state cops. CSI? CSI, Crime Scene Investigation. I'd never seen one I, uh, before that show. The show. Yeah. And a bunch of state cops. And I walked downstairs, and she's at the head of the stairs, because it's been hours now. It was hot. It was like July or August. It was pretty hot. So finally had put the baby in a cooler. Mm-hmm. with ice because, you know, we were yeah. getting concerned about what we were going to do and they didn't want to get in trouble, et cetera. Um, so they came, the state cops, try- I had to bar, they wanted to come up and 
see the baby, et cetera. And I said, no, you can't come in. And finally, we got a really nice older cop who had never been, his wife had never been able to have kids. And, he, and we said, you may come up. And we brought him up and we explained the whole situation to him. And he looked at the baby and he cried. You know, he just like, he had to process stuff. It was, you know, yeah. it, was, it was completely foreign, like a planned home birth, first of all, is foreign to them. And then a planned home birth of a, of a baby who had died. And that's like, what are you people crazy? You know, like, yeah baby had died. They wanted to have the baby in there. It was quite a day. We finally managed to navigate the whole thing. It's in my investigative record. (laughs) It's interesting to read my investigative file, but they they never pressed charges against me and they never, but it was really tough for the family. What would you press charges for? Well, I was practicing midwifery without a anything, you know, without a license or it was illegal. Me, I was illegal. Wow. You know, and it makes me think of some of the contrasting stories that I've heard about people having a planned hospital birth of a a baby who had died in the hospital and some of the unbelievable horror stories that I've heard of how those women are treated. I mean, it is so traumatic sometimes. Oh, I I have those stories. I have those. But I want to say that I do, I want to give cred, credit where credit's due. I think med, the medical community and medical school is, is trying very, they realize we are in crisis and they're trying really hard to humanize the doctor-patient relationship to make doctors like, um, I had thyroid cancer, so I went to Johns Hopkins and I was surprised that my doctors were very available to me at all times. They gave mm-hmm. me their email, their cell phones, we talked, they were empathetic. I saw that shift mm-hmm. in how they are trying to take away those barriers, but they haven't quite gotten to the birth, you know, pregnancy. They haven't quite been able to get over that hurdle yet. So there's still that fear and that, you know, because um, obstetrics is probably obstetrics. And I'm trying to think of the other um, medical discipline. Those, those are the people that get sued and they're terrified. So yeah. I had another, this is funny now looking back on it, but probably about this kid's probably 18 or 20. I thought about, I thought about this story because I was trying to think of unusual things that had happened. It was an African-American community and their midwife had died. They had their own traditional midwife. Can you say what state? Wilmington, Delaware. And they had a really wonderful community, which they invited me into because there was no midwife to serve them anymore. Mm -hmm. I did a home water birth for this young mom with her first baby and all of her. It was so great that all these women were around her to support her, but this was foreign to them as well. They were like, ah, you know, they were young. And, home birth, uh, you mean? Yeah. A week or two later, this, this mother, they invited me to a naming ceremony. We preserved the placenta because she wanted to bury it when they decided what to name the baby. It was part of their, their heritage. And so there was, a pastor there, there was drumming, there was, I don't even know what their belief system was, but it was so wonderful and so warm. There were men and women from their community and they were dancing around in a circle and they invited me in and it was just so cool. You know, we had a big feast and then we went out in the backyard and dug a big hole and buried the placenta. 
and then they released some doves. It was, I was like, this is so cool. I love this. Thank you for inviting me and including me. It was really cool. I thought, well, that was really great. And I let, and I drove home later that night. I get a call from this frantic mother. She's like, oh my God, Karen, I don't know what to do. The FBI is at my door. They've cordoned off my whole street. They want to dig up my backyard. <laughs> there had been a very, very sad, unfortunate, there was a, co- a young college couple at University of Delaware, and I don't want to go into too much detail, but they had had a baby in a motel and they had disposed of the baby and it was discovered and they were prosecuted. Um, and it was like infanticide. Let's say they didn't do anything to help the baby live. Let's, let's, okay. I I can't remember the details, but this came on the heels of that. So there was Mm -hmm. like this area and one of the neighbors had of course witnessed us, you know, doing this burying ritual and this So the FBI came and dug up her yard and dug up the placenta and confiscated the placenta. And she had to, she was so traumatized. She and her priestess went to the state coroner and put their foot down and insisted, give me back my placenta. This is a placenta. Here's the baby. That's the kind of stuff. And I've seen, I've seen stuff like that, you know, throughout my, it's kind of like, what, what is this crazy world. I don't know. But it's so foreign to us. Death and birth, that's the point is, we've removed it so far from our personal everyday experience that it's like a scary thing you have to pay a fortune, you know, to experts to help you do because you can't, you can't do that. To go somewhere else and have it done. You can't have a baby. I mean, what's the media tell us? In every show, yeah, it kills me every time. Mm-hmm. The woman's water breaks suddenly oh out God. of nowhere, out. right? Oh Immediately, it's fear and terror and um, panic. And the first person they tell goes, <gasps> right? Not like, oh, great, oh, wonderful, oh, we're gonna have a baby. It's, <gasps> oh my oh God. God, you gotta get, get the, the car, right get the, now. yeah, get yeah, the car. like, like you're gonna explode. That's our national mindset around it. However, you know that there's this groundswell of women now who are not only taking birth back or have been for many years. I mean, like it's big in my lifetime as a midwife, like the seventies were pretty big for home birth. And then we saw a real lull, like it really went down in Maryland in particular. We just had a meeting, a midwifery meeting last week. And one of the, one of the midwives, actually she's in CNN. She was talking about the statistics on the rise in home birth. In Maryland, it's been rising at a rate higher than almost every, any other state. It's very strange. Um, that is strange. Yeah. We've, we've had like an 80-some percent increase. Now, it doesn't mean we have 80% home births. We're, we're over the 1%, right. I think, well over. Right, where it used to be half a percent, right. then it's 1%, right. and then yeah. it's 1.5%. Right. That is a really... Yeah, we the, the increase we've increase. seen is in the last like five years. It's like whoa! It's like bumping up every time you turn around. I mean, it's great. I love it. But so then you've got what I see coming, and this we'll get back to the beginning of, of our conversation. What well, good, I because we're we're almost out of time. So that's a great way to wrap it up. <laughs> so what I see coming is a time when when. What midwives did in the late 60s, early 70s, the renaissance of midwifery, the the recreation of of who we were, community midwives, is going to happen again because the restrictions being imposed on midwives are not realistic for women. I probably get 
three to four inquiries a week from VBAC moms in both Delaware and Maryland yeah. who I can't talk to. Mm-hmm. The only way to uh, attend their births would be to go back and pretend they did it themselves and we couldn't verify anything. And What do you mean verify? We couldn't have anything to do the with the birth certificate. We you couldn't be on a record as being we were felons attending the birth. Yes. From, from the late seventies, well, early eighties till this year, certified professional midwives or unlicensed midwives were felons in the state of Maryland. It was a felony offense with an automatic jail term and a very large fine. In many other states, it's, it's a misdemeanor, but here it was made a felony. So it was, it was scary. I had whole reams of paper, you know, to explain to people they could, I could not verify their birth. They couldn't ever say my name to a public health nurse that they had to call and say, oops, well, dad caught the baby. We planned it or we didn't plan it or whatever. You had to concoct some story, which is absurd. This is a basic fundamental right. You shouldn't have to. They pretend that it's against the law to have your baby at home. And now, one thing I wanted to say is, now that we're licensed, certified nurse midwives, and we have, a, we have a number of certified nurse midwives, maybe, I don't know, eight or nine, more than I've ever seen in the state, who are specifically attending home births. Um, they have been submitting their birth certificates online for years as I do in Pennsylvania, as I have in all the other midwives in Pennsylvania, we just, you know, there's a website, you submit your data online. It's very simple. Parents get their birth certificate relatively quickly. They get their social security cards. But in Maryland, the CPMs, the license, we're, we're LDEMs now, that's our title. License. Okay, technically. Okay. We cannot submit them online. The state of Maryland, the Department of Health or whoever's in charge of vital records is creating a course for us so we can learn how to submit our data online. They make so much work for themselves. Our tax dollars are being wasted on a scale that is kind of beyond belief. Yeah. That's it. Goodbye. Thank you, Karen. (laughs) I adore you. Thank you. This has been birth aloud with Kristen Piscucci. If you'd like to reach me with questions or show ideas or anything else, you can email me at birthaloudradio at gmail.com. Thanks for being here with us. We'll be back every other Sunday at 1 p.m. on WLXU. We'll see you next time.